You're listening to Nightmare on Film Street. The current time is 6.66. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife. But it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on Nightmare Time. So, let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare Alley, a detour podcast from Nightmare on Film Street. I'm Kim. I'm John. And this week, John's going to interview some people like last time, and I'm going to laugh. That's not true. (laughs) You got in a few good questions there. But we're talking this week with horror screenwriter and author Grady Hendrix. Years ago, I first became aware of Grady Hendrix because Kim bought me his novel Horror Store for Christmas, and I've been obsessed. The Ikea catalog from hell. Oh, it's so good. You guys, <laughs> you gotta check it out. It's an Ikea catalog. It's got the same dimensions as Ikea catalog. It's got weird instructions that get demonic and crazy as things start to happen inside the store. It's got a, a gratuitous use of umlauts. Umlauts? <laughs> What's the plural of um- umlauts? This is the kind of hard-hitting journalism you come to Nightmare Alley for, (laughs) and do not worry, we got another hour of it for you. He is, of course, also the author of My Best Friend's Exorcism, We Sold Our Souls, and Paperbacks from Hell, which, some of which are actually available now. You can purchase them. Which is so cool. Right? We gotta get on that. Yeah, in addition to his horror novels, he has been the screenwriter on a few films, Mohawk, which he co-wrote with Ted Gagan, and Satanic Panic, which was directed by Chelsea Stardust and came from the Fangoria Presents banner. We sat down with Grady Hendrix to talk about his most recent novel, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Maybe the best title ever. (laughs) And also the synopsis, I suppose. Uh, You kind of get the whole gist from that title. It's a Southern Book Club, and they're going to slay some vampires. (laughs) So it's definitely perfect for horror fans, but I I would say right now that this is maybe a book that's written more for fans of true crime than anybody else. Uh, And even in the introduction of the book, Grady Hendrix talks about vampires being our first serial killers because all they do is just roam the earth, killing indiscriminately, getting away with it for years. And I, I love that approach to it. He also just has a really interesting idea for what a vampire could possibly maybe look like. And also even just the strangest interpretation of where ghosts come from. Uh, but and there's also some really adorable women who have a book club at the center of it, and it's it's got this like fried green tomatoes meets the Stepford Wives thing happening. Absolutely, <laughs> I love every single one of the women in this book. They are such interesting and hysterical characters, uh, and they kick a lot of ass. But who better to talk about it than Grady Hendrix, who we interview in this episode? The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires is available wherever books are sold right now. Uh, But, you know, now more than ever, maybe this is a great opportunity to support your local bookstore, find out if they are offering curbside pickup, at-home delivery, uh, and there is a really cool virtual platform for supporting your local bookstore if they don't have that set up yet, which you'll hear all about at the end of the episode. Just a small warning, there are some minor spoilers, but nothing that's going to stop you from enjoying the book if you haven't read it or listening to the rest of the episode. For now, enjoy our talk with horror author and screenwriter, Grady Hendrix.
So, Grady, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah, no, thanks for having me. Truth be told, I, I do actually have uh, a little bit left uh, before I finish your book, but I am, like, I'm loving all of the characters. Like, the story, obviously, I'm a big vampire guy, but the characters you have in this are so wonderful and, and so brilliantly put together. I, I, I want oh, to go to a book club with these ladies. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a lot of why I um, wrote this book was, you know, that's the neighborhood I grew up in. And, and, you know, a lot of these are people, not real people I've taken from my life, but, you know, they're the kind of people I, I know growing up. And so for me, some of this is a nostalgia exercise when I write. Like, I like this place for all its complications. I like that time period. So, um, yeah, so I'm glad that that comes across. The introduction of your book, you talk about uh, wanting to pit your mom against Dracula. Is Was that the, the core of the inspiration or did it come from something else? Oh, yeah. No, that was definitely the inspiration. You know, it's funny. My best friend's exorcism, which is set in the same neighborhood sort of a few years earlier in 88, and it doesn't really feature any of the same characters, but, but sort of spiritually similar. I mean, my best friend's exorcism is about high school friendships, and this is about uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, about adult friendships. But... Those books, both of them, actually were titles before they were books. I mean, My Best Friend's Exorcism, the title just popped into my head, and I was like, this is too good. I've got to do something <laughs> with this. And this book was originally, the title I had in my head was My Mom's Book Club Killed Dracula, which, which <laughs> That's cool. isn't quite a great title, but I felt like all the pieces were there for a book. So yeah, so I lived with that title for years before I actually wrote the book. That's so fun. That's like um, that Teenage Dirtbag song. I think that was a title before it was a song. Oh, was right. it? Right. Yeah. Well, it's also sort of the way Roger Corman used to make movies at AIP. You know, they come up with a poster and an ad campaign and a title and then write a script. Actually, today I was I was reading about Rock and Roll High School. And yeah, like that was the idea. They, they had a title before anything else. And, you know, Roger Corman being Roger Corman, he originally wanted it to be disco. But they yeah. couldn't get Teenage and, you know, Rebellion. And I, and I really think that titles are important. You know, um, you know, like Lee Wanell's Invisible Man. Like, I'm kicking myself. I mean, it's right there in the title, and I'm kicking myself that I didn't have that idea before him. It, yeah, you know, just to play up the man rather than the <laughs> invisible. Yeah, um, that is one of the things that I've, I keep coming up against when I think about that movie, but uh, I'm learning to live with it. <laughs> He's just a sticking point. He doesn't like the, the twist. <laughs> I'm a supernatural Wait, guy. The twist. That he's still alive and using a invisibility suit. Yeah, for for me, I need my like. First off, it's it is a great story. It's it's a it's a really interesting twist, and they they do a great job of of angling it toward that. But I guess I'm still stuck on the idea of an invisible man having a superiority complex because he is no longer human. Mm, got it. Yeah, they. Wait, I, is that in the original? Yeah, I think the idea was that they he becomes invisible and he can never go back and he starts to have sort of an apex predator thing where he feels like he is more evolved than mankind. And I just the idea that if you can't see yourself when you look in the mirror or even when you look down at your hands, eventually it's like ego death. Yeah, there, there's a bit of ego death. There's an idea that maybe you don't exist. So the laws of man don't apply to you. Yeah. And if it's a suit, anybody could wear it. Right. Mm -hmm. So he so anybody could get that complex in the remake, which I get. Oh, yeah, I guess. I guess I like the suit in the remake. You know, I haven't seen the original probably since I was really young, and I think I wasn't paying much attention at the time. Yeah. Um, I liked that it was a piece of tech, because I feel like right now that any jackass with a pair of balls who develops an app suddenly thinks he's, like, disrupted the world. And, <laughs> you know, like, WeWorks, right? Like, literally, that was just an office rental company. 
And yet the founder of WeWork felt like I'm changing the world. I'm disrupting education. I'm saving the planet. And it's like, literally, you're just renting office space. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like anyone who develops an app, like I've come up with a way to like disrupt laundry. Now I'm going to save the planet. (laughs) It's like that kind of like ego glow seems to go with tech these days. Oh, man, that's so funny, because literally, I think it was like three days ago, Elon Musk just randomly tweeted like, I think Tesla's stock is too high. And it dropped like crazy. Because he put out this no, like, no caps, no punctuation tweet. Right. Well, and it's also interesting, though, because, like, you're saying, you know, I've been doing the same thing, which you're talking about the stocks dropping their prices. And I've been doing the same thing with coronavirus, like, looking at the markets. Like, the first couple of weeks, I was like, oh, the markets are up, the markets are down. And I think they're just imaginary. Yeah, like, it's just random. The only people losing money in the markets are people who are playing the markets. Like most people just stash their money in there and look at it 20 years later, you know, when they retire. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I saw somebody on Twitter talking about uh, the stock market as astrology for middle-aged men. <laughs> yeah, that's about that's about as good a description as I've heard. But but I totally was buying into it. Like I'm not some superior being, you know, and, and like I've made myself stop looking at it because it's like these are just people trading every day these aren't normal people yeah and it has no correlation to like the economy like everybody's out of work but yet the stock market's starting to go back up like it doesn't make any sense and it's also you know it's interesting like when you're saying astrology like i really like am astonished i was talking to my nephew and um his girlfriend and like she was into astrology and was showing me like all her apps like co-star and all that and i was like holy crap i can't believe astrology's made this huge comeback and Someone has to make an astrology horror movie. Yes. That thing would sell like bonkers. Do you have a title for it yet? <laughs> I God, I've been don't don't think I haven't been thinking about it. <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, you have written uh, two movies now, and I, I assume you probably have some un, unproduced screenplays. Do you have a preference, like writing books or writing screenplays? I really like both of them, and it, it's funny. I think novel writers i hate to say novelists that sounds so pretentious but i think book <laughs> writer people who write book um could learn a lot from screenplays you know books are so interior and screenplays obviously everything has to be in action everything has to be something you can see happening i mean unless you're going to use like a voiceover and that's a little boring um unless you're doing something really cool with it and so i guess that's that's everything, right? Unless you're doing something cool with it, it's boring. <laughs> Unless you're John Hughes. Um, these pearls of wisdom keep falling from my lips. Um, but like, you know, I look at my first book, Horror Store, which is about a haunted Ikea. I think literally the entire book takes place inside a store, almost entirely. And yet I managed to have three scenes in a car. And in every one of those scenes, it's a character on their own in a car. And one thing I've learned from screenwriting is, like, you don't do that. Like, you can't just have characters drifting around. They have to be doing something. They have to be interacting with people. I mean, I really hate rereading my books or watching movies I've done. But in both cases, I made myself watch it, Satanic Panic once and Mohawk once with an audience. And each time I realized for all the set pieces and the action and the really cool twists and all that stuff, where the audience really leaned forward is when they were watching two characters interact. And I was like, okay, so, you know, that's what people want to see. And these scenes I see in books of people sitting and thinking or walking down or parking their car or sitting in a room alone. Like if you look at a, 
uh, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, every time someone's in a car, someone else is in the car with them, talking to them, or they're going somewhere they're scared about getting there or worried about getting there or nervous. Like, or it's a really, really short scene that I use to drop a little exposition. Like, just no one, like this relentless interiority in a book and this lack of sort of set pieces, like all this action that's so sprung out and diffuse, I feel like people who write screenplays really have a lot to teach in terms of like, being economical with that stuff it's like there's a like a level of efficiency like okay what three things can i get through with this scene or this this set piece yeah and it's you know it's funny when i talk to writers i know who don't read their stuff out loud themselves i'm like really like to me it's like i read my stuff out loud to myself and some of it's so horrendous when you hear it spoken out loud and all alone you're embarrassed and like doing screenplays like i mean with Satanic Panic, one of the great things was sitting with the cast at a table read. And like, it made me bring my A game because I was going to have to listen to people say this out loud. <laughs> if you're writing a screenplay, an actor wants an entrance. They want interesting things to do. They want themes and emotions to play. You know, and so I feel like when I see someone just poop a character onto the page in a <laughs> book, I'm like, really? No entrance? No big moment? No... <laughs> You know, it's weird to me. Like, I really, I, I feel like screenwriters, because it's so public, they, they have to sort of like really, I don't know, every line has to really work. Um, and I feel like books, you've got, a, they're a little baggier. They're a little more interior. You've got more room for error. I mean, there's more work, more pages. Mm. So it's a really different thing. But, but I feel like doing screenplays has made me a much better book writer. It's so funny you should talk about not reading or, or reading your, your stuff out loud. I've been reading the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires out loud for the two of us to sort of enjoy it together. And oh, nice. I don't, you know, I don't have a great Southern accent. Oh, it's accent, been so fun, though. But I am doing, I am doing <laughs> my absolute best to try and, and put a voice to each of these individual characters because you do such an incredible job of juggling a, several women in a room together that all have completely different personalities how do, you, how do you go about creating each of those defined characters? Well, I, that happens sort of because I'm a really bad writer <laughs> in terms of like efficiency. I'm like super inefficient. Basically, I'll start a book and I won't really, I, I always know the endings before I start, but like I'll sort of go all over the place and about halfway through the book, I'm like, oh my God, I need to, and so I'll sit down and like, I have to outline this thing. I've got to do something here. And then I kind of start over and, there's like three versions of this book before I got to the one that like three completed manuscripts before I got to, well, I guess really two before I got to the one that I started revising for this finished one. And at one point what happens is just like I kind of run out of story. <laughs> then I like write that outline usually. And then like I get to the end of that version and I'm like, Oh my God, this is so shitty. Everyone's just running around doing things. <laughs> then I sit down and I write like the, I basically take every character and I write, their entire life history, their backstory, everything. And then I'll do that version of the book. And that version of the book, I think final version, I think is 110, 120,000 words. I did a version of this book that was like a little over 200,000 words. Wow. And that one was like, oh my God, so much about everyone's family and their kids. And I wrote so much about Kitty's kids. Holy crap. I need to so know like, everything about Kitty's kids. Please release the Grady <laughs> Hendrix cut. I want. I need to know everything about Kitty and I need to know everything about Slick. Those are my two favorite people in the world right now. Oh, Slick's great. I love Slick. And when, when, when Slick has uh, her 
her horrendous incident happened. That was originally something that was going to happen to Patricia. And then I was like, it's got to happen to Slit. It would hurt it's so much hurt. more yeah. for her. That's the best when your characters kind of decide what gets to happen to them because you know them so well that you're like, oh, no, this would be the best for this person. Yeah, I know. It's so sadistic and awful. I felt so bad. I was like, I feel so sorry. I'm sorry, Slit. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just write all this stuff out, just like so much stuff with these characters that eventually like I know them super well, you know, it's just and, and that's kind of the only way I can do it. But it's like every time I have to rediscover that every time I write a book, I, I do a version without the story and then I have to put in the story. Then I do a version with all without the characters. And then I have to put in the characters. And by that point, it's like the story. There's too much of it. It's too many years spinning. And so then I strip it down. And that's usually the version that starts getting refined into the final draft. I wish I was smarter about this stuff, but I seem to do it the same way every time. Well, I think it works. I mean, in in just sort of talking about their daily routine or even just how they keep their house, like I learned so much about each of these characters just in like a few sentences. Like you're you're becoming oh, like thanks. the, the I really Ernest Hemingway. Oh, I, I really do mean it. I I think you're becoming like the Ernest Hemingway of horror with with much more humor. <laughs> thanks, I appreciate it, and, and hopefully with a different ending to my life. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Said during a pandemic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My favorite bit of the Ernest Hemingway legend is, I'm pretty sure, and you guys can correct me if you know differently, but didn't Remington do like a Hemingway shotgun later on? Like a branded Hemingway shotgun? Oh my God. Well, not putting it together that that's how he blew his brains out, but just like the game hunter. Wow. I love wow. that. I need to find that out. That's like a rock star version of like a Gibson guitar. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Insane. Anyway, sorry. What were you saying before I cut you off? Well, no, no. I think this. Is, I, I think it's a perfect segue. I was going to talk about serial killers and vampires uh, because those are definitely like the two biggest talking points, I guess. At least where I'm at in your book right now. I know it, it seems like you have a love of both vampire books and movies and and serial killer stuff as well. Like, which of those came first for you? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, probably. Serial killers. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so, like, I remember when all of a sudden it just felt like there was a serial killer every day in the newspapers and on TV. And, like, there was just one after another. And they kind of felt like they came out of nowhere. And, I mean, when you look at, like, the incident of reported serial killer investigations in the FBI, I mean, you look at, like, the 60s and it's, like, 23. You look at the 70s, it's, like, 52. And you look at the 80s, like, 120. Like, wow. it really did suddenly come out of nowhere. And so, and I felt like when I started thinking about vampires, um, there was this idea. And I, and I think a big part of that was sort of, I, I, in the back of my head, some people have said the book's, like, Bright Night. And I feel so stupid that I didn't realize that until after I'd written the book. I was like, oh, yeah, right, Bright Night. Yeah, exactly. And I'm kind of glad I didn't realize that early on because I, I wouldn't have wanted to do something dumb like, you know, give a little wink to Fright Night. <laughs> but for me, the big influence was Near Dark because in Near Dark, the vampires are sexy and they're kind of blue collar and they're kind of got this cowboy thing going on. And it really made me think about that sort of American iconic figure who's, you know, the cowboy, the loner, the stranger who drifts into town, you know, no one knows where he comes from. No one knows where he's going. And one thing that got me really equating that with serial killers, and, you know, I feel like I shoehorned in that bit about uh, the bridges of Madison County. Like, I was just like, like, it's not a book they would read. But like, <laughs> when I read Bridges of Madison County years ago, I was like, oh, my God, this is a serial killer book. Like, there's all this 
stuff in it about how like, you know, park your truck where no one can see that you've come to my house. And he's so careful that no one sees him coming or going and no one knows what they're up to. It's just like so creepy and weird. And so like that to me was really sort of this near dark vampire cowboy. And then Bridges of Madison County is really what kicked off a lot of this in my head. Wow. So what books did you have? Because you you strike me as the type of person, just based on your paperbacks from hell, the kind of person who does a deep dive amount of research. What were the books that you were reading, uh, like leading up to this or while writing it? Oh, yeah. Well, not so much vampire stuff. Like I, I read, I reread the original Dracula. And I feel like there was one other vampire book. What was it? I cannot remember. But I feel like I read Dracula and one other novel. And then Oh, oh, and, the, and then I read the. There's a great. I don't know if you guys know Montague Summers. He was this like, gosh, I want to say Anglican minister, but he wrote all these crazy ass books around the, the turn of the last century and, and, and into the 20s and 30s. Like he wrote this book, The Werewolf. He wrote this book, The <laughs> Vampires of Europe. And like they're really just collections of folklore and unsubstantiated bullshit. He just <laughs> kind of picks up and then regurgitates it like it's fact and like. Like, he did a whole book on witches, and he really, like, believes in witches. And it's the most lurid, over-the-top story. So I, so I read his uh, Vampire in Europe, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I read that. But then mostly what I read, when I decided they were going to be a true crime book club, I read a ton of true crime books. And Anne Rule's uh, The Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy is an incredible book that people should read. And that had a huge impact on this. Because, I mean, really, Anne Rule's her first book, and it's really the book that set the template for modern true crime writing. I think it's 1980. And she was just this housewife who was trying to make ends meet, raising four kids by herself and taking whatever job she could get. And she was freelancing for some detective magazines and then got her first book deal. I think the advance was like 10000 bucks to write about what was then being called the co-ed killer in the Pacific Northwest, which turned out to be the Ted Bundy killings, which turned out to be committed by her really good friend, Ted Bundy, who Whoa. worked next to her, every, I think, twice or three times a week at a suicide hotline. She started writing and the like, book before it, she knew that it was Ted? Ted Bundy? Yeah. Wow. She had no idea. And it's like, and she does not let herself off the hook. There's a really creepy fucking scene in the middle of that book because it's after Bundy was arrested in... Um, I think Colorado for some murders and he's released and he comes back to Washington state and she's starting to think it might be him, but maybe not. And he asked her to meet him in this bar in the middle of nowhere uh. and, raining, and she meets him there and they have this long, like boozy afternoon in this rainstorm while he's trying to convince her he didn't do it and all this stuff and talking about his case and like, more and more people are leaving the bar and she's getting drunker and drunker. It's just such a great set piece. It's really fabulous. Anyways, we so, need so this I read movie. That. And then like, of course, <laughs> stuff like Helter Skelter and Joe McGinnis's Fatal Vision and Zodiac, which is a weird book. And, and then the other books I read a ton of were, I guess they would be called domestic fiction, you know, or it, or nonfiction, like books, like Irma Bombeck books, you know, or Nancy Stahl in the 70s, like all these women who like were housewives who wrote or were syndicated columnists writing about their life as a housewife. And like the best ones of those, uh, Shirley Jackson, who did Haunting of Hill House and We've Always Lived in the Castle, she wrote these two sort of domestic nonfiction books called um, Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons. They are (laughs) 
fantastic. They are so cynical and so funny mm-hmm. and just like so mean about raising kids. Like <laughs> they're really great. I mean, it's like her training her kids to make her cocktails and empty her ashtrays. <laughs> um, they're really fantastic. And like Florence King, who wrote Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady, who was also another sort of syndicated newspaper columnist, I think in the 70s and 80s. Like, so a lot of those, just because I really wanted to get that feel for how women were talking about raising families and being mothers and working and all that. And then I read a ton of books from the 90s. They were sort of getting, you know, the big sort of like on-brand 90s books, like The Erotic Silence, The American Wife, and like Listening to Prozac and Iron John, like all the stuff that was very like, this is the book of the moment. Um, Just get back into that like 90s headspace kind of. So yeah, so only two vampire books, Dracula and Montague Summer, the Vampire in Europe, and then a lot of true crime, a ton of this domestic nonfiction, and a lot of like 90s books. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. That sounds awesome. Well, I mean, first, a lot of them sound, especially the 90s books, sound like book club books of the time. So definitely like the oh, yeah. perfect choice. Um, so Yeah. And I mean, a lot of them were books like designed to like, you know, be like hot takes on stuff, you know, so it was like designed to spark a conversation. Yeah. And I mean, like the 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 housewife culture in your book is is really interesting because, I mean, like it's playfully sort of husbands versus wives, at least in their respective worlds at the beginning. But it really does morph into this husband versus wife story that's really Stepford Wives esque toward. Yeah, it's it's weird, right? Because like I didn't want the husbands to be horrible, but the one who gets the most page space is Carter, who who's, you know, pretty egotistical and and not so great and like you know kitty's husband horse is fantastic man there's so many chapters with horse that are like like on my hard drive that never made it to the book (laughs) and like you know mary ellen's husband's a nice guy he's just sort of a nerd who like really suffers from a depression that she kind of struggles to keep balanced and so i mean there's all that stuff but yeah the one who gets the most time is carter and carter's a jackass he's a huge jackass (laughs) It's funny. I grew up in Charleston and um, so my dad was a doctor. And so, so many people I grew up around were doctors and and Charleston is a big doctor town and and doctors are treated like little tiny kings down there. And so, you know, especially surgeons, but like I got to see a lot of these dudes just at their worst, like their most egotistical. And a lot of them, I still know, and they really mellowed a lot of them. I mean, some of them retirement's been really savage, too. And it's like they've lost, they're no longer a doctor, so who am I? You know, and they kind of spin out of control. But a Mm. lot of them, once they stepped out of that role of being sort of 
the, the tiny king of the hospital. Like, they're like, they've mellowed into really nice guys. And like, I don't recognize them anymore. And it's really been interesting to see that like, you know, also in the 90s, no one was really examining what men did, right? Like, if you didn't beat your wife, okay, you know, like, like, mm-hmm. domestic violence, was like domestic physical abuse was like bad absolutely bad everyone was on the same page with that but like emotional abuse like uh, i don't know that was a matter of opinion did it exist did it not i don't know and just sort of like benefiting from the dude card like without really questioning it that seemed to be okay and it's like it just was not examined much men were allowed to be really unreflective of of their place of their role yeah, and I mean, obviously we, we have James, the vampire, the main villain in the book. He's obviously, he's not presented as a huge asshole, but we, we you know, we see through him. Uh, <laughs> were, yeah. there, were there specific vampires or specific serial killers that you were basing him on? Oh, I mean, not so much. I mean, I was basing him sort of on, I guess, three people, really. One is... Um, Ted Bundy, obviously, Mm. Um, just that sort of endless self-justification. Like, it's amazing to read stuff Bundy wrote towards the end of his life. Just he never took responsibility for what he did. He always had a reason. It was always someone else's fault. It was always like, you know, he was hard done by. Um, And then another person I sort of used was, was Robert Kincaid from the Bridges of Madison County. Like, I find that dude so creepy in that book. It is just beyond belief. And then the third one was not anyone who exists, but I don't know if it's someone I met once or or what, but like, I've always had this image in my head of just, you know, one of those guys you, you meet at a party and they want to talk to you all about Ayn Rand and they want to talk to you all about like Bob Dylan and Jack Kerouac and, and just all this shit I'm not interested in. And then at a certain point, their laid back, easygoing attitude takes a turn and they just out of the blue get in a fight with someone. I must have been at a party with someone like this in college or something. Like, but they just have this dude so imprinted in my head. You know, that guy who's all easygoing and laid back. And the more you talk to him, the just the more toxic you realize he is. Yeah, like the only thing he carries around other than his guitar is a copy of Nietzsche's Good and Evil. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also that thing that people do, and I, I, I'm sure women do it too, but I've, I, I just have seen it in dudes before where it's like it goes from like laughing and smiling to like this fun picking a fight, like boom, like out of nowhere. Um, and I've always found that really, really scary. Yeah, Kim, you ever pick a fight with anybody out of nowhere? I don't think so. Oh, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) We've done a totally scientific poll. (laughs) I mean, it's enough of a sample size for either a podcast series spinoff or a Netflix special. So I think we're covered. Terrible science. (laughs) So what are you uh, like? Your book has been what's keeping me entertained lately during quarantine. Is there anything that you've been reading or watching uh, with your time stuck at home? This is what's weird for me. So I'm I'm actually really fortunate. Like, I'm really busy right now. I actually, like, have a book coming out next year and a book the year after that. And I've got a couple of other projects. So I've been swamped. So most of my reading has been for work. Like, I've been reading a ton of vampire novels and paperbacks from, like, the 70s and 80s just to sort of, like, do some performance stuff about vampires because that's what I do when I have a book out. I just <laughs> do shows about the book. And um, so I've been do- reading a bunch of that. 
And then a lot of what I've been watching has been for this other book project I'm working on. That's about Kung Fu movies coming to America Ooh. and um, <laughs> in the 70s and 80s. And so I've been watching a lot of those movies sort of for fun. I've really been a little bit obsessed with um, pre-code movies right now, like all the early Hollywood stuff, you know, before 1934. Mm-hmm. Like I've been watching a lot of like, like baby face where it's like a woman, like basically like she works in this horrible, horrible roadhouse and like men just like have their hand up her skirt all the time and this <laughs> kindly old professor is like have you read the books of Nietzsche Nietzsche <laughs> says you must treat everyone's face as a staircase to walk up to achieve your maximum human potential and she's like yeah pop that sounds about right and then she <laughs> fucks her way through this bank literally she just sleeps her way up to the top of this bank and like the camera does this thing where it follows her up the outside of the building from floor to floor between these dudes. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and I like was watching this thing called Little Little Giant with um, Edward Robinson, you know, who played gangsters, who plays a gangster who like prohibition comes and he uses all his money to get in with society, and then he finds out that everyone in society is basically running a Ponzi scheme, and like the movie ends with him getting this bum company foisted on him. It's like a huge Ponzi scheme. And so he brings all his mobsters from Chicago out to him where he's like Santa Barbara. And like, they go to all these people's, all these rich people's houses and like torture them. Like really torture. Like they're putting out cigars on the soles of their feet and making them like, you know, return all the money. And it's really satisfying. Um, (laughs) I've been watching that stuff mostly. Um, And then in terms of reading, I mean, I've just been mostly like for fun reading comedies, like, you know, the, I just reread Shirley Jackson's Life Among the Savages. I reread Diary of a Provincial Lady, which is kind of like Bridget Jones's diary written in 1930 by this housewife with this grand country house in England who she'd really just rather be in her bathtub with her cigarettes and her gin reading a novel. And so the <laughs> whole thing's all? like Bridget Jones meets Downton Abbey. It's really fabulous. Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat, which is just simply about three guys who get in a boat and go on like a four-day boat trip. And the idea of three people in a tiny boat and like people camping outdoors and all that stuff seems so exotic right now. It's uh, when it ended, I was like, I wanted to see this. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I have to ask too, before we let you go, uh, like it was previously announced that horror store and the, my best friend's exorcism had been optioned for TV shows and movie treatment. Has, has there been any news on that or, or are you going to be involved in writing any of it? Horror store, there will be an announcement soon. I can't make the announcement. Uh, and Best Friends Exorcism, it looks like they're going to make it. Um, I'm sort of out of the loop on that one, but the last I heard, it's like kind of like your kids go off to college and you're like, stay out of trouble, right? And Call occasionally me sometime. you get a postcard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I got the postcard saying it looks like it's going to happen. So we'll see. They're going to hopefully make an announcement in the next month or so for oh. both projects. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. The horror store was one of the first books Kim had bought me for Christmas. And she's like every Christmas since has just been like another great book after another great book. And that's what introduced oh, me to your writing. And Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's it's such a great book. I've been waiting for it to be turned into a movie or a TV show for years now. I'm sure you have more than me, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> And, you know, before we let you go, one question we like to ask everybody. What's your dream drive-in double feature? Oh, man. Okay, so I would want to pick two movies that I don't think they're prints for anymore. I'm a huge Hong Kong film fan, and, like, a lot of those movies, even from the 90s, have been lost. And so two of my 
favorites that I love the voice on people. Like, and neither of these movies, I don't think ever even made it to DVD, to be honest. Wow. One is Fox Hunter, which is, I think, 1995. And it stars Jade Lung. It's a Girls with Guns movie. And Jade Lung was always sort of a second-tier Girls with Guns star. But I think she's fabulous. And this movie's like, it's um, Tong Wai, even Tong Wai, who's, um, he was an action choreographer who only directed a couple of movies. And it is great. She basically plays a traffic cop who gets an opportunity to be a decoy in this operation to catch this super sadistic uh, criminal. It all goes wrong. And she winds up taking him down, but he immediately escapes. And everyone's like, oh, oh, he'll never bother you again. Well, he immediately escapes from prison, finds her home, murders her family, and goes to mainland China. And so she tracks him down mainland China with this sort of like cowardly pimp uh, in tow. And it is like the action in it. It's not huge stunts, but it's all very realistic. And it's very hard hitting and really just relentless. It's so good. It's. And it, it never went to DVD. It never, I, have, I think all the prints are long lost. I would love to see that on a big screen with people, as well as just sort of for a change of pace. I don't know how well you know your Jet Li movies, but he made this movie called about a year earlier in 94 called The New Legend of Shaolin, which is it's basically the Japanese knockoff of Lone Wolf and Cub. Like okay. he plays this executioner and they wipe out the emperor wipes out his family. And so he takes his baby son and he's like, you can crawl towards the ball or you crawl towards the sword. And if you crawl towards the ball, I'll murder you. And if you crawl towards the sword, I'll take you with me as I travel the land seeking revenge. (laughs) Oh my God. And so it's like basically Jet Li and Chi Mao, who's the kid who's I think like 12 or 13 years old, maybe a little younger, maybe 11. And it's this father, son, martial arts, comedy with like this villain and it all takes place in like 17th century china but like the bad guy drives around in this like tiny car and <laughs> it's just ridiculous and over the top and jet lee's got such a great deadpan there's this great comic set piece about him washing his underwear like it's so good so yeah <laughs> it would be fox hunter and new legend of shaolin wow. back to back and no one's allowed to leave <laughs> Yes. That sounds like such an incredible drive-in double feature. I did not expect that Jet Li, Jet Li movie to be a comedy. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, he made a ton of... Because it's a Wong Jing movie, and Wong Jing was sort of like the evil genius of bad taste in Hong Kong. Like, his... I think a critic described his movies as a spoonful of sugar and a spoonful of shit. And, like, oh. his stuff is all in ridiculous bad taste and so goony and over the top. But they made a movie... um. Wong Jing had made a Jackie Chan movie called City Hunter, and he really hated the experience. And so the next year, he made a movie called High Risk with Jet Li, in which Jackie Chan is portrayed as like a drunk bum who like just wants to screw women, and he's scared of everything. And Jet Li plays his stunt double who does everything for him, and then they say he does all his own stunts. It's so mean and ridiculous wow. and funny. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us uh, about Asian cinema and uh, and about Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Where can people find the book right now? Anywhere that sells books. I mean, it's um, they've got it on Amazon. They've got it in well bookstores. Um, but the one thing I would encourage people to do is listen. I love Amazon. I got nothing against them. I think I got a package waiting for me at home. But Amazon's going to be around next year, and right now, independent bookstores might not be. And Independent bookstores have come together and formed this online portal called bookshop.org. It's really just their way to do mail order. And 
you order from bookshop and a chunk of what you spend goes into a fund that's distributed to independent bookstores, or you choose a local independent bookstore that your sale will be credited toward um, as if they sold it to you. And then bookshop.org does the shipping. And, you know, it's like, it's a couple of bucks more. Like I just put in an order for a couple of books from there. And on Amazon, I think my order would have been like $8 less, but I kind of feel like that $8, that's the tax we pay to have neighbors. And Mm -hmm. when bookstores, independent bookstores go away, they don't come back. And, you know, they're the people we know, they're the people who are struggling. So I would really encourage people to either buy it from your local bookstore because they're probably doing shipping or home delivery or curbside pickup right now or do bookshop.org. That's so cool. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, I was really impressed. Cool. Yeah, I thought it was, yeah. It's been really interesting for me to see sort of all these brick and mortar bookstores sort of pivot instantly and become online businesses and doing virtual events. It's kind of astounding. Yeah, that is one of the things that's really popped up that's been so surprising is people that had never had any sort of online presence creating an online community with almost no resources. Yeah, it's really crazy. And it's amazing to see it happen so quickly. And listen, there is nothing good about this coronavirus pandemic. But I do think one effect it has is it's made a lot of people embrace this change very, very quickly. And, and I, you know, I got to say any book tour, like my book tour got canceled. I've been doing virtual events, but any real life book tour I do in the future, I'm going to supplement with virtual events. They get great attendance. People love them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea of going to a bookstore in North Dakota, traveling all that way, staying there for a one night event that attracts 40 people, it's not economically feasible for me. Yeah. But doing a virtual event for them, that, yeah, works. It's great. Yeah, yeah, and if people couldn't couldn't have made it, they can hop on any time, I assume. I, I assume it's yeah. on demand, yeah. Exactly. And the other thing is, you know, I actually have seen really good attendance at online events. And I think one of the reasons is that um, I think people are rightfully wary of author events because, let's face it, we've all been to some really boring ones in our lifetime. <laughs> and I think knowing that they're just going to log on and if they get bored, they don't have to be like, excuse me, pardon me. Oh. And like everyone stares at them when they get their bag and leave. I think <laughs> yeah. knowing they log out is like they're more willing to get this, give these things a chance. Thank you again to Grady Hendrix for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for listening to another episode of Nightmare Alley. If you're looking for something to read right now, we highly encourage you to check out the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. But let us know what you're watching, what you're reading, who your favorite serial killer is over on Twitter at NOFS Podcast, on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash nightmare on Film Street, and of course in the Horror Movie Fiend Club group on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. But until next time, stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive, but we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.